News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkist podcast from the nonprofit room by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Katie Onan and Dr. Christina Greer. Hi, Katie. Hi, Chrissy. Hi, Harry. Hi, Harry. So, later in this episode, Katie's going to be talking with Rachel Holliday-Smith, associate editor at the city and truly excellent explainer of all things New York City, about the proposals that are going to be on the ballot this year in the upcoming general election. If you have no idea what you're supposed to be voting on and who can blame you, Rachel's going to fill you in. My personal rule is always flip the ballot and always vote against any ballot measure that no one's bothered to explain, which covers all four of these proposals, one statewide one and three for the city. And a reminder that you can go right now to vote.nyc to see your election day and early voting locations and also look at the ballot uh, to see who you'd be voting for, these proposals and everything else. Uh, Before that conversation, let's talk just a bit about some of the news happening in another jam-packed week in New York City. Eric Adams declared a state of emergency on Friday, uh, seeking more help with the asylum seekers arriving in large numbers in New York City. That sounds very dramatic, but in practice, all that does is let the mayor get around certain land use restrictions. And as he's now saying that shelters and housing are coming, and without advance warning, to neighborhoods across the city, as these asylum seekers continue to arrive here in large numbers, and the city now projects as many as a easily record 100,000 people could be seeking shelter in New York by the end of the year. Uh, Politically, and this is really the point, declaring the state of emergency and giving a big speech about it was intended to get state and federal money to finally start flowing here as this administration scrambles to find housing and other accommodations, uh, including uh, bilingual teachers for schools, by the way. Um, that's helped that President Biden and Governor Kathy Hochul, two fellow Democrats who both had fairly warm relations with Eric Adams, but also have their own midterm, you know, nationally, and gubernatorial elections coming up in November have yet to provide. So the mayor estimates the crisis could cost the city upwards of a billion dollars. And this is as it begins construction on a new relief center and housing on Randall's Island, which by that we just mean a really big tent. Uh, and the mayor says this will exist separate from the city shelter system and the existing right to shelter. So a lot of issues there with more and more migrants coming in every day. Um, of course, if you worry if our swagger mayor has not also been enjoying himself while dealing with the city's crises, Page Six reported the mayor was out partying with rappers French Montana and Ja Rule just hours before declaring that state of emergency. Also in New York, Mayor Eric Adams signed a city law on Tuesday defining the Times Square gun-free zone, a move that came days after a federal judge struck the zone and the bulk of the new gun laws the state passed after the Supreme Court's Bruin decision earlier this year. That's a decision that will take effect later this week unless a panel of federal appeals judges acts before then. And also the worst part of all this uh, in New York City news, uh, after a crushing Mets law, that's mandatorializing, I will say. I'm sorry. I will apologize for that. But um, 
Never apologize. <laughs> I'm sorry. Even after a crushing Mets loss in a wild card series against the San Diego Padres, playoff baseball in New York City is expected to bring an estimated $100 million in economic revenue. That's according to Mayor Eric Adams. It's all money the city will need as the challenges here and the bills continue to add up. So, Chrissy, we have our question. I guess it's a frequent question we have about the 110th mayor that the 105th mayor used to put out all the time. How is Eric Adams doing? Yeah. I think this goes back to you when when you mentioned Ja Rule, I started to chuckle because it goes back to our conversation that we keep having. It's like this mayor loves hanging out with formerly convicted (laughs) felons. He just can't get enough. Like, and, whack and there's rappers. nothing wrong with, you know, like. Listen, oh, I like you, Gerald, but. You, you've ahead. served your time. I don't know. I saw that <laughs> fire festival thing. I thought that was the best. And, you know, my my ancestors are from Bahamas. So it's like, shame, shame. <laughs> um, you know, and hey, listen, there's nothing wrong with formerly convicted felons at all. But I just think it's so interesting that this particular mayor just can't seem to get enough. It's just like, you know, if you don't have a record, you can't get on a schedule. So this asylum seeking situation, um, which, you know, is is so sad and frustrating because we are seeing this political conversation with families and children involved. And I think, you know, I don't ever envy any mayor, especially the mayor of New York City. It's like, you know, I've been told it's like riding in the Tour de France while trying to change your bike tire. <laughs> and so Eric Adams has to figure out, you know, we know that the mayor's budget isn't actually... Uh, that flexible and fungible. I mean, much of his money is spoken for. So he's got to figure out how we use resources, um, whether it's housing or education, uh, with, you know, an influx of people. But I think, you know, Katie and Harry, this is where the rubber hits the road, where it's like we got a lot of progressives and a lot of liberals in the city who, in theory, want to help. You know, we are a, a nation of immigrants. We're a city of immigrants. But, like, when it comes to where do we put people, then all of a sudden it's a lot of hand wringing and, and, you know, purse clutching. So it's like, we've had this conversation in the city over and over again about where do we put these, you know, new Jews that are coming in? Where do we put the new Irish? Where do we put these blacks from the South? You know, where do we put the Chinese coming in from the West? These are arguments we've been having for a hundred years. And now that we've had it, I just feel like I don't, I'm not a mayor, so it's not, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to figure it out, but like it's, it's literally not my job to figure it out. I mean, as a citizen of New York, I want to figure it out because I want to help this the situation in a collective action space. But like, I think we waste a lot of money in certain resources as far as you know our housing and homeless shelters. It's like the money is we're spending a lot of money, but it's not smart spending. So we need to figure that out, and not with like some you know million dollar consultants that are going to come in and like tell us what we already know. Um, but I, I definitely think that, you know, in talking to my students about this a lot, I think the frustration that I'm hearing over and over again is we can't seem to figure out this crisis that seems to happen every two years. Yeah. This time it's like in the forefront. We're, you know, Republicans aren't just like caging people. Now it's like, let's ship them to cities so people can see it. But I think the frustration I'm hearing from my students a lot is that we say we don't have the money and the resources, yet we seem to find a few billion dollars for Ukraine every 20 minutes. So, like, which one is it? Do we not? And, you know, and my students are very clear. They're like, we support Ukraine. We, like, the pictures are horrible. We get it. But it's like, well, it's, you know, Syria, Afghanistan, you know, continent of Africa, certain countries, things are popping off as well. We don't see the same resources. So it seems like particular countries are getting a lot of money and, we have folks in the United States who need resources and they're just not getting it. So like, how do we circle that square? 
So bringing that back to New York City, speaking of circling this square and questions that really shouldn't be for you. And uh, hopefully we'll just ask Mayor Adams some point soon on this pod. I don't know, Harry, your bet's looking shakier and shakier by the day. <laughs> we have he has six months to come on. If he does, I get dinner. Or rather, Christina pays for dinner. If he does not, I pay for dinner. So, 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 Mayor Eric Adams has that power as well. He has some other powers and things on his plate to deal with, of course. But he's been talking a lot about the uh, the left and their failures, and this has been sort of his go-to line on a whole series of issues that, like, uh, uh, the right is malevolent and the left is silent or incompetent, depending on the issue. So, with the asylum seekers, the mayor has said. Speaking of whack rappers, by the way, some of the loudest uh, that are saying we need to make sure we house asylum seekers have been some of the loudest saying not on our block. Uh, the loudest have been the least benevolent. And I bring up whack rappers because it's that sort of uh, calling out nameless, extremely generic MCs. Uh, Adams went on to say, uh, you can't say we're going to do everything we can for these asylum seekers, but not in my district. You can't have it both ways. Either we're in this together or we're not. I'm not listening to that. No one gets a pass during an emergency. Everyone must do their share. So Adams, who, who's feuded with the left on a number of occasions, hasn't uh, said who in particular he's talking about here. And there's plainly, as, as he's the executive and trying to get things done, you know, a form of, of buck passing within that because he can put shelters in these districts without needing permission from council members or assembly members or Congress members or whomever. So does Adams have a, uh, a, a point here? Is the left, uh, the, the, the politicians on the left is clearly the mutual aid people and so on. They've been there and beating the buses and doing a lot of this work. Uh, or is this simply a form of buck passing, as you see it, to unnamed lefties? Yeah, I mean, the mayor has been very vocal in just like, I guess it's almost been in reaction to what people have said in, to criticize their plan for the asylum seekers. On Friday at his press conference announcing the state of emergency, he started it with asking us reporters, like, can you do me a favor? The city council said they have a list of hotels that they can, you know, that the city can use to house these people. Can you get that list for me? Because I haven't been able to, which is a really... Um, you know, if it's politically or whatever it is, playing to the cameras type of thing. But I also understand, yeah, um, where is the list? Where is this kind of, I think people point to a lot of the early days of COVID when there were really, truly empty hotel rooms. We don't have that right now. Um, and, you know, he he says that often in, in criticizing people who this whole, like, if you can't complain unless you have an idea or if you have a suggestion, which, you know, I mean, it's people's jobs to complain to some degree, but it's also people's jobs to come up with solutions. So that is sort of the heightening um, fight, feud, I don't know what you would call it, against the city council. Um, he's pointed to two elected officials who he says have been very helpful, city councilman Eric Botcher of Manhattan and state senator James Sanders of Queens. Um, but yeah, I think even s singling them out, um, I don't know what the, what the point is there, but yeah, his whole thing is he's even said to reporters, like, if you, if you have an issue with something, why don't you volunteer? You know, what are you doing to help? Which is sort of out of the scope of our job. I don't really have access to, um, empty hotel rooms and buildings and housing, but, um, it's a complicated process. Like I think the whole switch from Orchard Beach to Randall's Island, people had said a lot of that loud criticism that he just, 
um, tosses aside as pure criticism, they had been saying, hey, this place kind of floods, there's ponding, it's not an ideal situation. It took them about, what, a week or so to realize, oh, yeah, maybe they were right. Um, so I think some of the criticism is maybe just criticism without without being constructive, but some of it is actually legit criticism that the mayor then kind of has to reverse course on, on a plan because all those people telling him it was a bad place to put, maybe they were right. Yeah. So this goes back again to the conversation we keep having. I feel like this mayor is making us feel like Groundhog's Day just a little bit because it's, if folks are telling you this particular location is probably not a good idea because the research and the data shows that it floods, are you listening? Did you not read the briefing? Are you paying attention when people say this? Are you so, are you being a megalomaniac where it's just like, well, I know best. And it's like, mm. well, this is why you have smart people around you to tell you if we're in a crisis, this is actually not a good idea. We should go with plan B, C, or D so we don't waste time, even a week. I mean, like, keep in mind, we're dealing with people's lives. And I'm not trying to sound histrionic, but like, these are people with their children who are trying to figure out what to do. So even a week of, of not having things organized and prepared is actually a really long time. And so I'm, I think it goes back to this undergirding current with this mayor, which is, are you playing mayor and doing the press conference and saying we need the money and declaring a state of emergency with, you know, your team behind you? Or are you really sitting down with all the stakeholders? Sorry, there's, um, it's Brooklyn. Um, or are you sitting down <laughs> with all the stakeholders and actually coming up with a substantive plan. 2,000 newly arrived people, I believe, over the last weekend from the city's numbers. We all know that's an undercount because we're not checking, are you an asylum seeker as a sanctuary city? And this is the number of newly arrived people basically who identified needing these sorts of help, often don't speak English and are accessing the traditional uh, shelter system. And it's mostly, particularly for single men, uh, congregate housing. In the meantime, this tent city, formerly uh, Orchard Beach, now Randall's Island, getting put up still evidently by this contractor who also helped build Trump's wall, supposed to hold something like 10,000 people max. What's weird about this is they're saying this is gonna be for four or five days that it's a real short-term place. So I have some political thoughts, but as a practical matter, speaking of the rubber hits the road, 10,000 people in and out within four or five days, other people coming in, how, how is that actually going to work? Are those the services that these people need? Um, where are they going to end up at the other end of this? How much of that involves the shelter system here? How much might involve housing other elsewhere in New York State, which Governor Hochul has pretty clearly avoided answering questions about? Uh, I, I, the extent to which, like, this is a difficult circumstance, not of Adam's making. It's happened very quickly. We are talking about significant numbers of people coming in and, and asking for resources that hadn't been budgeted on that basis and that the city says correctly it's going to provide and it's obligated to. But the extent to which this seems to be winging it is wild. And look, if you close that at Randall's, uh, uh, if you close the, the parking lot tent after it started going up because of the flooding, 
I don't know, but uh, good for you for reversing yourself and listening to what all these people said very belatedly on a Friday night, I guess. But like somebody should get fired for that. And maybe that's uh, OEM commissioner, Zach Isco, uh, former briefly mayoral candidate, who's also welcome to come on the pod and explain why that's totally wrong and what it is he's doing or thinking. Uh, but 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 somebody, uh, you know, just as part of running an administration, holding people accountable, defending your people, uh, you know, when you think they're being unfairly attacked like that, that is a gigantic fuck up. Um, and, you know, at a moment when you're talking about the, uh, the, the urgency, the, the need for more help and, and the city's activities, we, we just put this in the wrong place and we have to start again is not uh, a promising sign about uh, the, the competence and ability to adjust to new circumstances and information quickly to, 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 uh, to, to, to get that far down that road. You know, this is where 10,000 people are going to go. Actually, never mind. I'm worried. Yeah. It's it's really concerning in figuring out, well, people had criticism of Randall's Island, so how long could that last? The mayor even said it it might not last for that long. So I know he estimates yeah. this could cost a billion dollars, but and he himself is very interested in cost efficiencies and agencies and making sure things are done well. Well, what's the cost of setting up a tent partially on one place, taking it down, moving it to another place, and then maybe in three months deciding, yeah, we can't last a brutal winter with this let's move it somewhere else um it's a he says it's temporary but it is a very costly temporary solution so figuring out what's going to happen i don't know what could happen in the next coming months so katie i think this goes back to one of your original points where it's like if the mayor has connections in the business world and if we know that so many businesses are in need of individuals to work in various capacities mm-hmm. and sectors why are we not sort of bringing everyone to the table and figuring out a game plan. And I I don't know if it's because the mayor's not interested in it. I don't think that that's the case. But I just don't understand, like, if we know winter is approaching, we have a temporary solution. There seems to be a a level of urgency that uh, I I feel like the mayor is performing, but I don't know if policy-wise that urgency is in place. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's, it's a hard thing to just simply perform on, but I think we're also, he might be kind of flying a little blind here and figuring out what to do, but that's why you would ideally have experts at agencies, experts within the, his own administration. So obviously he's the mayor, but where there's somebody saying this is not going to work, you know, whether it's not having the guts to say it or, or there's just not those systems in place yet in, in this, you know, less than a year old administration to say, this is not going to cut it. We got to find something else. We need to do something else. You know, I don't think the mayor was insistent on Orchard Beach for any reason other than that's what the the location they decided on initially. It wasn't like he had some stake in it. But yeah, it's a problem. And and I, you know, he is right that we need we as a city need state and federal help. You know, specifically Absolutely. federal help. So maybe this is all kind of his effort to get it. Um, calling the state, declaring the state of emergency, and and figuring out. Maybe that is the way to get that money. Well, I saw that as a financial strategy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the only way you can get federal money, you know, besides just going to Joe Biden yeah. with your tin can. But like to say it's a to declare it as an emergency, I think puts you in a queue that is more receptive for you actually getting the funds that you need. Yeah. So we've been talking about very urgent and immediate issues. For the newly elected mayor, 
And that's a perfect transition to go into very big and long-term issues, uh, whether or not Albany should be able to borrow billions more for a big TK, uh, as in to be determined environmental plans, uh, and three proposals for uh, statements of values for the city government. Katie and Rachel Holliday-Smith got together to talk about that. Let's jump right in. Rachel, hello, and thanks for joining us today on FAQ. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Nice to talk to you, Katie. So um, we're here with you to talk about what we as voters will be voting on this year, in addition to whatever, you know, governor and and, and senator. I've seen all the Chuck Schumer ads on my Hulu, um, <laughs> so I know that an election is coming. Uh, and, you know, you wrote a very thorough article on the initiatives on the back of the ballot, flipping the ballot. There will be four. I'll just quickly go through them. The first is a statewide proposal that would increase spending in the state legislature on future environmental projects, I guess would authorize that increased spending. Mm -hmm. This is for things like stormwater protection and wetlands protections. And then there are three New York City specific initiatives. Um, One that would define how the cost of living is calculated. One that would officially form a racial equity office. And the final one is what, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes, but it's audio so you can't see, a statement of (laughs) values for the city. So Rachel, can you first discuss for us how these initiatives got placed on the ballot? Yeah, so they it's sort of different depending on if it's a state or city thing. So as you said, there's one state um, ballot initiative that actually states, changes the um, state constitution. And um, that actually goes back to Cuomo days. Um, this comes from Andrew Cuomo days before the pandemic, when you know advocates were saying we really need sort of a down payment on climate change spending and you know getting the state to be resilient, um, that was first proposed in early 2020 by Governor Cuomo um, in his state of the state. Then, of course, it totally went by the wayside <laughs> when the pandemic happened. And actually, I wrote a story all about this Environmental Bond Act that was supposed to run like March 9th, 2020, and then of course got <laughs> remember that? I wrote the whole thing, and then of course it got canned um, because of the pandemic. So. Um, this is essentially billions and billions of dollars. It will authorize the state to, you know, bond out or borrow um, that much money to do all kinds of stuff. I mean, you went over some of it, but it, it really is a really long list. It's um, making electric uh, school bus fleets, you know, uh, shoring up wetlands. Uh, it, there's a million different things that it's going to do. Um, and that, you know, was had to be approved by the state legislature through the budget process to be put on the ballot, and then it goes to the voters. So anytime the state wants to borrow money through a bond act, it has to go to the voters in this way. Um, So this happens from time to time. Every few years, you know, Mm -hmm. the state will say, let's let's get a bond out there, and and this is one of those. Um, The other three, as you alluded to, are city um, proposals, so they're only for the five boroughs. And those really all come from... um, the racial justice commission that was um, created by Mayor de Blasio. So we, in the Eric Adams era, we're voting on um, de Blasio sort of led initiatives. And um, those came from, they really came out of the 2020 summer of 2020 um, George Floyd protests. Mm -hmm. It was sort of a moment when everyone was saying, we've got to do something about racial equity and racial justice. And this was a solution, you know, from Mayor de Blasio um, to create you know, various, a racial justice commission that would aim to make things more equitable in the city. So we've got these 
sort of three things that they came up with that ended up on the ballot from all of their work. Um, and we can go through those if you want in a little bit more detail. Yeah. I mean, my first question, just going back to the state one is maybe it's a dumb question, but couldn't the state legislature just on its own authorize this amount of money? Or I guess, is it such a significant amount of money? And we can talk about that, that it actually requires this. I had the same question for the advocates I talked to about this because I I was saying, well, why don't we just go through the regular, yeah, why not just go through the regular budgeting process? And their sort of general answer was it should be both and and Mm -hmm. all and more the merrier. It's sort of like- Um, we should, yes, be budgeting through the regular process um, for operational expenses when it comes to resiliency and even capital expenses. I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure stuff that needs to happen, but um, they felt like this amount of money, you know, would be, it it is needed. It's sort of like, we also need this type of um, financing and funding. And it sort of um, alerts voters that this is necessary and a, and a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that climate change is real. We need to sort of make an effort to deal with it directly. And um, and also this type of thing is popular with, with voters. So I think that was part of it too, um, to go to the voters and approve this. But um, I think, you know, the budgeting process is complicated and, you know, uh, can be s- slow. <laughs> and when you go through the regular process, this is this was also slow, but it's sort of like, we need to do all of it. We this is not going to replace the regular budgeting process. We also need to sort of get Albany lawmakers to approve money for this, but voters like this type of thing. We need these billions of dollars. Let's just put it to the voters. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. And I guess one minor point also, I mean, a lot of times with budgets, there's so much politics involved where maybe putting this to the voters, if if this gets approved, you could say when you're trying to authorize this money, like, hey, the voters approved this. Um, yeah. And I also will say that, you know, this includes a lot of different line items, a lot of different things that you would have to probably sort of piecemeal put together, you know, approve this project. It it would just, anyway, this is a big omnibus sort of like, let's, uh, bond this out and get it started. Yeah. Yeah. If we could talk first, getting to the city ballots about this cost of living change, and I guess what it is now and what it could ultimately do and, and how, if at all, an, an ordinary New Yorker could benefit from this being codified um, in the city, this this change. Yes. This one's a little bit dense, sort of, sort of a policy perspective, but <laughs> it, I'll try to break it down. So there have been various ways to measure um, the cost of living in New York over the years. Um, and people, and it did take into account, it included things like um, subsidies for housing mm-hmm. and subsidies for childcare as income. Mm. Um, and people who advocate for folks who are low income said, that's really not fair. And we need to sort of get a better measure of things, not including sort of those subsidies that yes, they are a benefit to you, but they're not really income. Um, so it, it's sort of going after the true cost of living and I'm doing air quotes like you did before. You can't see it. This is a <laughs> podcast, but I there. can confirm that you're doing them. <laughs> Um, that would basically just include all, like what it costs for housing without subsidies, what it costs for childcare without subsidies, food, transportation, clothing, like all of the things that people need to buy in New York City. What is what is that true cost? Um, and you know, I talked to the Citizen Budget Commission um, about this, and they said it it, it seems like a good idea generally, but um, they're kind of skeptical about like the things you do and do not include 
as subsidy, meaning do you, you know, include the cost of what subsidies go into public housing for public mm-hmm. housing residents? Like what is the true um, value of living in public housing or, or a rent stabilized apartment, that sort of thing. They were sort of saying, mm, this maybe could be a bit more specific, but the overall um, idea here is to have a little bit of a truer sense of what it costs to live in the city for people who, you know, get a lot of subsidies. So that's the idea there. So with those initiatives, um, with the uh, racial equity group, with the quote unquote statement of values, which is very vague. I mean, who is actually promoting these ballot initiatives? I know um, this week, some city council members, including the speaker, Adrian Adams, had a little rally outside city hall, uh, urging people to vote for it. But as Harry noted earlier in the show, and with a lot of these initiatives, they just sort of appear on your ballot. And unless you're truly tapped in, not that we don't expect people to be reading the city diligently, but who's promoting these uh, to actually let these pass? And then we could also talk, you know, in your story, you had the data on, you know, most of these ballot initiatives around 70% since 1985 get approved. Um, So who is pushing for these and, and, and what are they doing to promote them? Yeah, honestly, not not that many people are promoting these, except for the racial justice um, commission that actually created them, um, and some city elected officials who are, like you said, going to city hall and doing a rally on the steps and saying, you know, rah rah, let's let's vote for this. But um, I think a lot of voters will be surprised when they see them because there's not a lot of, um, you know, talk about it. There's not a lot of controversy that I can see around it. You know, sometimes you hear about a battle, ballot proposal because it's got a lot of pushback. Yeah, I don't hear a lot of that with this, um, mostly because, you know, these, these things are not, um, they're not super controversial. I mean, as you said, the proposal number two is a statement of values. It's almost like a mission statement around racial equity for the city charter. So it's, it's just adding language to the city charter, you know, that costs almost nothing. Um, the racial equity piece, which is proposal three will create a new office of racial equity. So that'll cost money certainly. Um, and that'll be a real change. Um, and it's requiring racial equity plans every two years from every city agency. So mm. for people who work in government, that's going to be a lot more work. Um, that's going to be a change um, in in thinking. Yeah. But um, for everyday New Yorkers, I, I don't know how much they're going to get riled up to vote like definitively for this or definitively against it. Um, sort of comes down to whether you you know back <laughs> racial equity as a as a goal, and if you think this is useful for that. Um, but yeah, it's it's a definitely a quiet season for you know promoting these proposals. The I will say the state proposal, proposal number one, which is this environmental bond act, um, has a lot more backing from environmental groups. They've been pushing for this for years. So yeah. I think we'll see, you know, flyers and mailers about that. And certainly um those large groups that are environmental groups and have a lot of members and people who care about the environment will uh make sure that they get um, the word out about that one. But uh, I think it's going to be a little bit of a sleepy season for ballot proposals. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you would even know this, but when it comes to the statement of values, um, who, who would decide it's not like the, the statement is on the ballot. And then would it just become, I think the running joke, especially when you're covering government is there's always a task force for a, a meeting for a blue ribbon panel for blah, blah, blah. And all this is to what, to say New York is tough, or I don't know what our statement of values would be, but what is, what is the process for that? 
Um, so the statement I believe is already written. So you know how there's always like language on the ballot and then there's sort of like longer, more dense mm. language that's you're voting for sort of the paraphrase of the actual thing that's going to change. So if people really feel strongly, they can look up, you know, the actual language change of the statement of values that will be changed in the city charter. So that's already been written from the Racial Justice um, Commission. Uh, so you can read it. You can see if you like it. You can see if you want it in the city charter. Um, but uh, but yes, there <laughs> there was a commission for the city charter that did this already. But um, maybe we'll have another blue ribbon panel for the blue ribbon panel to determine if this is <laughs> I don't know what we want in the future. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And you said, I guess the ballot proposal, um, what will be on it, it aims to create a quote unquote, just an equitable city for all. Um, right. Which, you know, it, it, it's certainly a, it's a nice sentiment. Hard um, to say no. Hard to say no. Right. It's it's sort of like, do you believe in goodness and fairness? Vote yes or no. Right. That's sort of what we're asking voters to do. So, um, yeah, so that's that's what's on the ballot. And as you said, yes, the, typically proposals generally ballot proposals generally are sort of popular with voters. Um, they they tend to just vote yes on them overall. Um, 70 percent of statewide ballot measures. This is statewide. So, oh, yeah. again, Number two, three, and four are city ballot proposals, but according to Ballotpedia, 70% of statewide ballot proposals since 1985 have been approved, um, which is interesting that voters opt for just checking yes um, on these things. Um, so we'll see if they do it again. Turnout, of course, could be a factor here. Perhaps, you know, if there's really low turnout, maybe those people who are actually turning out know a lot about this and actually have done the reading and done the homework and kind of know what they're talking about here. And maybe that'll affect things, but we don't know. It's very, you know, it's interesting. Oh yeah. I, I, I just, so, you know, I pulled up um, what the ballot will look like and, and what's on the racial justice committee and um, include in the preamble statement that the city must strive to remedy quote past and continuing harms and to reconstruct revise and reimagine our foundation structures, institutions, and laws to promote justice and equity for all New Yorkers. The final report from the RJC, if people are interested, is is really quite in-depth. I mean, they went back through history and sort of talked about like the history of racial injustice in New York City and our founding and sort of the marketplaces and the commerce of New York City and how it intertwined with slavery and colonization and I mean, it really went deep. And so I think that language is trying to speak to that. Yeah. There's a lot of um, thought and depth of feeling and um, history that sort of gets condensed into this statement of values. But again, it, it is just language in the city charter. It's not like um, that particular proposal mandates any specific action um, right. by the city. That sort of comes in with proposal three, which is creating an office of racial equity, which will mandate um, racial equity planning in every city agency, which again is just planning and talk, you know, getting down to it. That is um, setting goals and setting expectations and setting sort of a statement of values for all city agencies. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what the commission thought of as a first start for creating a more just city. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess they would, uh, I'm just reading off what 
the proposal is identify and propose priorities to inform the racial equity planning process. So as you said, and and work with each agency to figure that out. Um, So yeah, I mean, we encourage everyone to to check this out and further Rachel's story, which we can link to when we put the episode up, kind of has a very good rundown of what will be on the ballot if you if you choose to flip it and vote? Um, and I, I mean, this is these are numbers you might also not know, but how often do people flip their ballot? I I, no, I don't know. Terms. That's a good <laughs> yeah. question. But all the advocates, voting advocates, and everybody is that's like the number one thing they say is flip your damn ballot. And it seems so basic, but you know, <laughs> tell your neighbors flip your ballot. I mean, people do forget to vote on this all the time. Um, it is like a down 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 ballot thing, I guess. Um, so just know. You have four ballot questions this year. Tell your friends, tell your family. Tell your friends to flip. Um, Well, Rachel Holiday-Smith, Associate Editor at The City, thank you for joining us to talk about this. Um, Obviously, we have more, and I'm sure there's, you know, I know that there's some listening listening sessions coming up. I saw there's one in Diversity Plaza in Jackson Heights on Wednesday. I don't know, you know, when the episode's coming out, but I think in the coming weeks, as we get closer and closer to Election Day, there will be kind of more of these little info sessions. Um, We'll try to share them when we see them. But Rachel, thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for talking about the ballot with me. F-A-Q. You've been listening to FAQ NYC, which is now a part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and are also a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists, online at thebrick.house. Our hosts this episode were Katie Honan, senior reporter at The City, the ubiquitous Christina Greer, a professor at Fordham University, and Harry Siegel, an editor at The City, columnist at The Daily News, and also our executive producer. I'm our engineer, Adam Kamara. A special thank you to our guest, Rachel Holliday-Smith, who's also an editor at The City, and to you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.